Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. I'd like to once again thank our listeners all across the world for bringing us to this point. Our website's logs give a picture of global internet traffic, and I'm happy to say that while a great deal of our listenership is based in the States, we have a truly international audience. Welcome to those listeners from Germany, Spain, and Canada who have recently joined us. UK listenership surpassed that of Peru and Australia some weeks back for our top international spot, while Belgium, Romania, and Sweden also make strong showings. We hope you are as glad to hear this podcast as we are to produce it for you. Much lies ahead. If you enjoy our show, please leave a quick review in your local iTunes store. It is a great way to spread the word. Please also feel free to send along questions, comments, corrections, or concerns to info at lapsuslima.com and follow us on Twitter at lapsuslima. As we step into the threshold of architecture after the First World War, be aware that the complexity of developments, even within the Bauhaus itself, means that we will, at times, strategically set aside our heretofore linear narrative and jump around when needed to spotlight various times, movements, and figures. The life of Walter Grotheus in particular was of a rarely broad and influential scope that ranged from absorbing Wright's 1908 publications when he was an intern in Berlin, through the Bauhaus years and beyond into Harvard and work in Japan in 1954. We look into a chapter of his life today, as we did in the previous episode, but we'll be returning to him periodically as we further follow architecture through the 20th century. As for the episodes generally, while we have always tried to let each release stand well as a single episode, every chapter in our podcast's version of history is closely related to each prior bit of audio. If you have found us recently and have not yet listened to the older episodes, we assure your doing so will lend you a richer perspective to where we are headed. Specifically, the Golden Twenties. When Matesius spoke in 1911 of art revolutionizing itself every 15 years, I wonder if he could have imagined how he would see that rate of change accelerate threefold during the 20s at a turnover closer to five. Coattailing the political unrest in Germany, Grotheus would take part in an artist's revolution and co-author the utopian-flavored manifesto for a new artistic age. Welcome to the 20th century as such. Walter Grotheus was 31 when war broke out. He was drafted, but was lucky enough to serve as a lieutenant in the Signal Corps, managing communications. Walter Isaac's biography relates how he was nearly killed several times, once shot down in a plane and twice awarded the Iron Cross. He was also fortunate enough to survive the 1918 influenza epidemic that killed between 50 and 100 million people worldwide. There is a story 
the legend of which would later loom large in architectural lore, of how the architect soldier was standing in a charred and bombed-out building that began to collapse, hearing it start to fall, knowing he could not get out in time, Grotheus ducked inside the brick fireplace. After it all crashed around him, he crawled out and observed the skeleton frame of the structure revealed, along with the brick fireplace, as the only elements remaining. It may or may not be the case that this brush with death and the arresting image of a building pared down to essentials by modern, brutal force impacted his beliefs on design. After all, in the examples of his pre-war shoelast factory and the 1914 Werkbund exhibition, he was paring down to essential form already. The spectral image of an old building, though, shaken by war and emerging, battered, yet transformed, into the very picture of strict geometry and material force, is a powerful metaphor. World War I may not have been the cause or start of modernistic transformations. We have seen how they already had momentum. But as with much in politics, technology, and culture, conflict helped to accelerate them. As the war came to a close, time had sped up on the home front as well. The Romanov dynasty was sunk in carbolic acid. Vienna was suddenly the capital of Austria and Austria only. Post-war, the Kaiser simply retired to the Netherlands. The urges to democratic and social reform in Germany that had been pressing for more than half a century in a parliament under strict imperial control were suddenly loosed. We could spend an entire podcast series doing adequate justice to the complex and often overlooked events of the German Revolution of 1918-19. However, a brief contextual overview is as follows. In rapid phases spanning mere weeks and months, Germany signed a stunningly favorable peace with the surrendering Soviet Union in early 1918. On September 27th, during the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, the attrition strategy paid off as the Allies finally achieved breakthrough on the Western Front. The war was finished strategically, but not factually. Surrender was eventually attained with no enemy forces on German soil. On November 3rd, the German Navy's Baltic fleet mutinied at the Kiel docks. Meanwhile, in Berlin, moderate socialist ministers in the Reichstag stepped up in government leadership as the Kaiser stayed in relative seclusion. He abdicated on request, and poof, instant democracy. The mutinous sailors from the Kiel docks marched on Berlin. The moderate socialists feared revolution so much that they caused one, and the old constitution was no longer in effect. In the midst of a power vacuum, radical socialists seized control in the capital and major cities. For all practical purposes, the GSSR was declared, but would not last long. On November 11th, 
The conservative vice-chancellor signed an armistice on behalf of Germany with the Allies, ending hostilities. The army had retreated from French and Belgian territory, and reactionary elements within the army leadership all but declared civil war on the rebellious navy and their radical worker allies. And this is where we came in last time. The new constitution was being drafted in Weimar, soon to be home of the Bauhaus, while the Reds and reactionaries were still killing each other in the streets all across Germany. This whole thing, from the naval revolt through four governments and the end of the Great War to the onset of civil war and finally of a new order, all took place in the course of just nine months, two weeks, and four days. So it was in this context that artists and architects banded together to form the Arbeitsrat für Kunst, or Soviet for Art. This was a workers' council, perhaps intended to be an upgrade to the Werkbund, just as the new constitution was supposed to be an upgrade to the Kaiser's Biedermeier parliamentary system. Though the Werkbund did not end, and the Arbeitsrat worked closely with it. Besides Grofius, the founding leadership consisted of Adolf Bena, he who defined expressionist architecture as chairman, and two leading expressionists in architecture and painting, respectively, Bruno Taut and Cesar Klein. Membership was diverse. More than 100 art world notables in and outside of Germany signed on and participated, including Lionel Feininger, Paul Kassirer, composer Yefim Golishev, Emil Nolde, and Keita Kolwitz. The manifesto bore a woodcut cover plate, the cartouche we posted for this episode, done in the rough style of Brücke, the Dresden Expressionist Art Collective that had been prominent before the war and was strongly influenced by African art. The title emphatically proclaimed Arbeitsrat für Kunst Berlin. Men and women together figure to the left of the title, brandishing a hammer and a 45-45-90 drafting triangle as they appear to triumphantly hector on in pursuit of their goals. The program consisted of what they called a guiding principle, which in the tradition of Michael Palin's Spanish Inquisition was really two, no, three, three guiding principles. The principle was... Art and people must form a unity. Art shall no longer be the employment of the few, but the life and happiness of the masses. The aim is alliance of the arts under the wing of a great architecture. On the basis of this tripartite principle, six preliminary demands were made. 1. Recognition of the public character of all building activity, both state and private. This was a kind of declaration of the rights of architecture and the citizen. 
civil servants were to renounce all special privilege. Urban districts were to be under the planning jurisdiction of unitary supervision. Housing itself would become a direct means through which to bring art to the people. They also called for permanent experimental sites for testing out new architectural forms and methods. The second point called for the dissolution of the Academy of Arts, the Academy of Building, and the Prussian Provincial Art Commission in their existing form. We should make perfectly clear the Arbeitsrat did not wish to abolish state funding or state schools. In the English translation of the Weimar Republic sourcebook, the last line of point two reads, The changing of privileged art exhibitions into exhibitions to which entry is free. This muddy ambiguity in English is much less prominent in German. The original does not use the word kostenlos, which would have meant free as in free beer, but frei which means unoccupied, open, or free as in free speech. The desire was to open restricted exhibitions and get rid of editorial state control of art schools, fellowships, and sponsored museums. Anyone in the States who can remember watching the McNeil-Lehrer report in the late 80s might have distinct memories of the Reagan administration and Congress waxing apoplectic about Andres Serrano's photograph, Piss Christ, winning a cash award paid for by taxpayer dollars through the National Endowment for the Arts. In many ways, that mutual travesty was an end to a story that the Arbeitsrat wrote in early chapter two. Demanding public funding for overhauled institutions like the Bauhaus, was point number three. Point number four requested enlivenment of the museums as educational establishments for the people. For museums to maintain a mixed collection of old and new works, and for them to keep rotating exhibits to complement the permanent collection. Directly related or not, New York's Museum of Modern Art has ended up adopting a program very much along these lines and contains work by Arbeitsrat signatories. Most provocative is point number five, calling for the destruction of artistically valueless monuments, as well as of all buildings whose artistic value is out of proportion to the value of their material, which could be put to other uses. Germany had several war museums and memorials already in planning, which these artists thought worse than useless. It is worth noting that some years later, Mies would design a memorial in the new style for the radical government leaders that had been murdered by right-wing forces just two months before this Arbeitsrat manifesto was issued. His simple but commanding brick wall brought to mind how brutally the coup was carried out. A metal star with a hammer and sickle adorned the upper right corner, 
In an example illustrative of Weimar Republic business transactions, Mies had to source the material for the star as five separate diamonds and have it assembled on site since manufacturers would not have wanted to go on record for memorializing fallen communists. A work that stayed true to the injunctions of the Arbeitsrat as being worthy to be spared destruction, though, was to be guaranteed a later demolition due to this very fidelity. As for the general question of preservation versus renewal, it became increasingly clear that, in the drastically altered interwar era, it would be the strident and schismatic to and fro of revolution and reaction that would hold sway over what had been more evolutionary arguments for cultural development previously advanced by the likes of Loos. And so we return to the Arbeitsrat and its manifesto's last point, which encouraged the establishment of a national center to ensure the fostering of the arts within the framework of future lawmaking. In other words, they wanted lobbyists. If the Arbeitsrat's six points seem excessive or overreaching, Think how they must have seemed like a modest proposal when compared to Woodrow Wilson's contemporary 14 points, which demanded such ambitious ends as a peaceful world government with no enforcement power, and such dead genius ideas as proscribed self-determination of nations in the Balkans, Poland being assigned free and secure access to the sea, and providing covenants for the unmolested opportunity of autonomous development in the Middle East. Though a second-term president, Wilson lacked support in the U.S. Congress and at multilateral treaty negotiations. By comparison, the Arbeitsrat, self-appointed arbiters of the artistic general will, was hardly in a position to have a bunch of artists wring demands from anyone, much less a national government. If one had, however, in the very recent past, experienced a revolution that ousted a czar and single-handedly ended the war in the East, seen the first Western army since the Crusades take Jerusalem, watched the last of the Habsburgs fade into nothing, and witnessed the Ottoman Empire that conquered Byzantium be defeated by super-determined goat herds and an effete British officer, then Perhaps it was not too far-fetched for these artists to think they could actually change the world and give the government instruction. The most passionate invectives against this clean, utopian, integrated art for a new machine age would not, however, come from politicians. Those would come later. The first stab into what the assailants saw as art that had become a festering boil on the corpse of Western culture came, of course, 
from fellow artists. Next week, we will let Grotheus take the short train ride back to the cultured tranquility of Weimar as we look more closely at the noise that took a hold of Berlin and Paris before and immediately after the war. The gas heart screams into the abyss. Dada and the death of art. Next week on Lapsus Lima. Thank you for listening.